Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain, and today we have an interview with film editor Frank J. Uriosti. Mr. Uriosti has edited RoboCop, Die Hard, Roadhouse, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, The Hitcher, and The Spikes Gang. The Spikes Gang will be shown Saturday, May 14, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More later, on to the interview. Before you begin to edit a movie, do you have a philosophy or your own personal rules before you edit a movie? When I, uh, when I look at the film, of course, I've already read the script. As I look at the film daily, which we call the dailies, the when I was doing it on film, the way they shoot the film, you know, is all out of continuity. So you do each scene to make each scene as good as I can make it. Then as I put it in continuity, things do change. I just look for the best performance, I say, of each individual. And that's the biggest thing I do at the beginning of the process. We're showing the movie The Spikes Gang, which you call... Oh. I'm sorry? That's an old one. Yeah, uh, we're showing the movie The Spikes Gang, in which you co-edited with Ralph E. Winters and doing research. You said he was a mentor of yours. Could you discuss the collaboration between you two? Sure. I met Ralph probably around 1950, before I even started working in the business, in, in the when he was cutting the movie Ben-Hur. And Ralph, Wint, Ralph E. Winters was probably, in my opinion, the best editor ever to live. I worked as his assistant on, on quite a few pictures. I went to work first at MGM in, in 1958 or something like that, and uh, was like an apprentice. And they, the, the way things worked in those days, when you went to work for a major studio, they uh, put you in every single department so that it was like a film school. You learned, you were in sound, you were in music, you were in film, you were a, you were a, a PA on the set. And then they would, whoever the powers were in those days, would decide where you were best suited, and they put me in film. We used to have our own stable, and they had the best stable of editors at that studio at that time, and that's how I met Ralph. But I actually worked with other editors that were like a man named Frank Santillo, who was probably the best montage editor ever. There were those types of guys that, that worked for the studio and being able to work for those type of editors. But Ralph was the one who really gave me direction and used to tell me, Frank, you can't do something that you think that somebody else wants you to do, like the director. He wants you to cut it. You have to cut what you, the way you feel it works best. And if you don't, you're not any good to the director. So when I was brought up by Ralph and, went, and we worked under him, we never, ever had a director in the editing room. He was not allowed. I mean, Ralph wouldn't allow a director in the editing room. And in my whole career, I never allowed a director in the editing room. I would run dailies with him, and then when I was finished with the fit, with the cut, then they would look at it. But that's the way I was taught. You stated on the cliffhanger audio commentary that Richard Fleischer, the director of the Spikes Gang, did not shoot enough coverage. And was this a problem on the Spikes Gang? And... What's the importance of shooting coverage? I said that. Yes, I said he didn't shoot coverage. Yes, sir. 
I don't remember saying that because Dick, I knew Dick, Mr. Fleischer or Dick Fleischer. So that wasn't a problem on the Spikes gang, that's for sure. The only problem we had on the Spikes gang was our schedule and some of the makeup, you know, like blood and stuff, was really looked unrealistic. And that was the biggest problem with the Spikes gang. Besides, I can tell you that when I, I was Ralph's assistant, even though I uh, helped cut the picture, I always remember Ralph telling me that, you know, we have to work around this kind of stuff. And I have a, I have a really, that was Lee Marvin in that movie, right? Yes, sir. I have, a, I have a really good story for you. I don't think a lot of people know this. There is a scene near the end of the movie where Lee Marvin is laying in a bunk. And he's, I can't remember what he was doing, who he's talking to, because it's been so long. What I'm telling you is we had a close-up on him, big head close-up, and he had too much to drink that day. And we were shooting, and this scene, he was pausing so much between lines that the scene was becoming so choppy that we, we had to figure out something else to do. And there's one part of that close-up, Oh, and we just stayed on it, that I made, because Ralph told me, try to find the best way to do it. I made a 10-foot jump cut right in the right on a big head close-up, and you cannot see it. If you look closely at the trees behind him blowing in the wind, you can see it. You can find, you can see the jump. But no, Dick Fleischer, he, uh, there were, I don't remember me saying that, but I might have. Or it might have been taken out of contact, because Dick Fleischer shot the the one who never shot coverage was billy wilder billy wilder just shot what was going to be on the screen and that was it we'd only get four or five hundred feet of day dailies a day that would be six seven pages of dialogue but he knew exactly what he wanted okay and ralph e. edwards uh, i mean winners well book, ralph winner's book he wrote a book called some cutting remarks and that's right he he said he wrote in the book he thought the Spikes gang script was nothing more than fair, and I tend to disagree with that. But what's your opinion of the final movie? I thought that we had a really good first maybe half. That we really had the audience really, uh, really, really had them. I mean, they were enjoying the movie. But then when we – this was 19 – had to be 1970-something – when the first young man gets killed, the audience just, we couldn't, we never did seem to recover. I'm talking about the movie didn't do financially that well, I don't believe. And I believe that was the problem. I, I actually told Ralph and the producer, Walter Mirish, who's a, still a very good friend, that killing those kids is going to hurt us, you know, in, in, a, in a commercial type movie. It was a good movie, uh, and it was done well, and we shot it well. I think that was one of Ralph's or mine's better credits. You also worked, speaking of Walter Marish, you worked on him with Midway. And what's it like yep. to work on a Walter Marish production? Well, Walter is, a, like I said, he's a very good friend. My agent is Larry Marish, uh, his son. And I I have been Larry's, a client of Larry Marish's for, well, since I was his very first client. Uh, and Larry, his son, actually worked for me as an apprentice on the Battle of Midway, Walter. So I've been a friend of the whole family. I was a friend of Walter's. I was a friend of Marvin. And we still are 
I still talk to him, you know, once or twice a month. And uh, Walter's in decent shape. He's 90-some-odd years old. Still goes into the office. So we had a really good relationship. I don't know if you know this story, but the, before we started shooting, they had me, I put all those battle scenes together from stock footage just by reading the history books. And then I would put in banners where an actor would be a reacting, you know, so that we, didn't, we knew what we were shooting, which way the planes were going. So all the battle footage, I started working on Midway at least six months before we started shooting. Once we started shooting, because we had so much, Bob Swink came on, who was a big-time editor in those days, and I was just a kid. And he came on and did all the American stuff, and I did the Japanese stuff. And then he left, and then I finished the movie. I'm sitting right next to a poster, a one-sheet of the Battle of Midway, which is signed by Walter, telling me, just saying on it, Frank, I, we could have never made the movie without you. And signed by Walter. Walter also gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award at the uh, Aces. and So he's a good friend. He's a wonderful guy. Very easy to get along with. And just thinks about the product. You stated that a dramatic scene is always more difficult to edit than an action scene. And getting the performances to come out even is difficult. And why is that? Well, you know, I, I really don't know why. I can't, I'll put it this way. It's just, this is a simple answer. The toughest movie I ever put together that I ever, that it took me the longest to really get together for was Basic Instinct. Because that's basically, the whole movie's all dialogue except for maybe 25 or 30 seconds of, of some dramatic action. In action sequences, when you put an action sequence together, you usually, it's all, it's a, it's a, there's a, like a rule, you know, cause and effect. So if a guy throws a punch and, he, and you hit him and you hit the neck and then it lands, or if somebody shoots a bullet, you can see you'd like to see him hit something or someone. So, so I've seen you see a lot of movies where there's a lot of shooting and you never see what they're shooting at, you know, or what hit. So, and also you can get away with a lot of mismatches and because it's the the action is so fast are are usually. I've always tried, when I on any action scene you've ever seen that I did, I think you can almost see everything that happened. There's no fast cutting so that you are trying to get around something. But there's, there's a lot of younger, and, and there was a few older editors that used to do this very fast cutting and thinking so because they were in trouble, and, and then just make a lot, of, a lot of cuts, and then boom, somebody falls down. I mean, most, I always was taught, you know, it's, like cause and effect. So try to be able to not cheat in action, but you can get away with a lot. It's a lot easier to get away with action cutting than it is with um, with uh, a dramatic scene. Like when you watch, when I first look, what I did, when I first cut the first few scenes of Basic Instinct, I would cut a scene, put it aside for a few days, and go on to another one. And then I'd go look at it on the projection room, in the projection room, and I would, oh my God, it was, it was, I thought, I said to the boys, I must have been sick or something or, or when I did that scene because it's terrible. And, and what happens is is uh, when you're doing dialogue, when you're doing a dramatic scene or 
or even an argument, you have to have a certain tempo or rhythm. And I had a Jerry Goldsmith, who was a very good friend, a composer, said, uh, I had a musical background. That was my, that was what I was going to be. I was a musician. I played different instruments when I was young. And uh, Jerry Goldsmith used to say at the USC Film School that the reason it was so easy for him to score movies that I did was because of the, the tempo and the rhythm of various types of scenes. And he accredited it to be having a musical background. I always thought it was just just an academic. I mean, I just thought when you look at something, it has to have a certain tempo. or And you can feel it. I mean, I, I can feel when a scene is choppy or... When I look at stuff today, you can see you know, there's. I don't see a lot of great edited movies now. So there are a few, but it is it's very difficult to become too cutting too without tempo on on the Abbott or the you know the the electronic system. There's sometimes they leave the scenes themselves too short. One other thing that I've always said to a lot of people: most movies today. Most movies are way, way too long. They can't get, you know, there's a there's a rule. If you see it, you don't have to say it. And if you say it, you don't have to show it. Those are those are little rules that I remember having when I was putting movies together. And I, I had directors like Richard Downer, I can give you one, that would call me from the set and say, Frank, what about this scene? I'm going to shoot this. We're under a... We're behind schedule, and I would know what scene it would be like. And I'd say, Dick, especially on the last lethal weapon, I said, Dick, don't even shoot it because it's never going to be in the movie. That would help the director. I, I really want to say something that a lot of people don't know. This is a, and if you could check with Warner Brothers or anybody, from the last day of shooting on Lethal Weapon 4, we were in release exactly 33 days later. We were in full release, dubbed, everything. Uh, and that's actually what made me, like I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm retiring because these schedules are too crazy. And they gave me that executive job. They gave me a, uh, made me a senior vice president at Warner Brothers. And I was there for like 12, 15 years as, as an executive vice president, or senior vice president. You've edited movies for Richard Fleischer and Sidney J. Fury, Jack Smiley. Oh, yeah. Paul Verhoeven, yeah. Rennie Harlan. What makes a good collaboration between a director and editor? Just the communication, and they have to, they have to trust you. And they have to trust what my, my instincts. And I have to be honest, when I see the dailies in the morning, I tell, I'll call a director. Paul Verhoeven and I probably had the, and well, even Richard Donner. I mean, I know I, I can't even say, I, I don't think there was one director that I didn't, even John McTiernan. John McTiernan and I became really good friends. And and only because I I gave him, you know, a true opinion of what was going on. I mean, if some actor or actress didn't do a good, have a, something, the performance wasn't quite up to par or up to the standard of the movie, I would just tell the director, I think we ought to look at these dailies or pretty soon because I don't want, I don't think so and so did such a good job on this one scene or or didn't look good in the scene or something, I would always, if, if there was something to say, and if there was, everything was okay, I would never, I wouldn't even talk to them. I just let, just let, they knew if I didn't say anything, everything was fine. You were talking about Paul Verhoeven and 
you did Total Recall and Basic Instinct and RoboCop and of these films, uh, you had to go to the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, to have these movies cut from X or NC-17 rating to get an R. Could you discuss that process? Oh, yeah. It's so funny. Since when I started, when every movie I did, from and it was just happened to be, I don't know why it happened, but from starting with Die Hard, no, starting with Total Recall, Every movie I did, all the way to Basic Instinct, was they gave us an X every time. In fact, on Basic Instinct, it actually got down to me working with the MPAA, and eventually they gave us an R. And today there would probably be a soft R. They would the MPAA would give me a list of notes, and I would discuss them with the director and the producer and then we would do what well, you know the best we could do and then we would resubmit it actually i think total recall not total recall but uh, robocop changed the philosophy of the mpa because we went back to them 10 to 12 times before we got our rating so they decided now i think you can only submit twice i think you can do a free submission you can do something, give us some advice without being an official look at, and they'll tell you what they think, and then you can resubmit it as your first admission. But I don't think they take it more than two or three times anymore. You edited two movies by Sidney J. Fury, The Boys of Company C, and The Entity, and Sidney J. Fury has an interesting visual style, interesting use of camera placement. Yes, he does. What's it like to edit a movie directed by Sidney J. Fury? Oh, it was great. He was he was uh, he was a lot of fun. He, he uh, we were I, like I must tell you, most of the directors that I worked with, Sidney and John McTiernan and all, all the directors that you could, we actually are all we were very we became very good friends because what happened is I had such a good rapport with them, you know. Sidney J. Fury, I think, was a great director. His biggest problem was his temper. He had a very, very bad temper. Not with me, but with people that he felt were non-creative, like the heads of studios or, or when creative executives started, if they said something, he would get very angry. And I think that hurt him more than helped him, you know. But he was a great director. He really was. And, uh, and a good guy to work with. In fact, I can t- I'll tell you a good story that about Sidney. Because I was always very honest. When we were doing the movie The Entity, he had a group of people that he wanted to see a sequence, and I hadn't done it. And he says, Frank, you've got to put this scene together. You got you have two hours to do it, or an hour to do it. I said, said, it's too big of a scene. You have 10 or 15 people sitting around this table. It's just too big of a scene. I can't do it that fast. He said, well, just do something. So I said, okay. So I, I took there were four, in those days, I'd always shoot a master. So I took these three or four masters. I would go through the whole scene, then cut to the next master, and then go to the end there. So I sent it to the projection room with him and his friends or whatever. And he was mad. And he comes in, he stands in the doorway of my office, and he looks at me and he says, Okay, Mr. Butcher, you just taught me a lesson. <laughs> he says, 
I said, you calling me Mr. Butcher? I said, Sid, if you ask me to paint this room in 10 minutes, that's what you're going to get. I can't. That You have to understand this is film. Which is, it, takes, it takes time to do these scenes. I understand. I understand. I won't ever ask you again. And I said, well, fine. I said, that's the best I could do in an hour. So funny, his son was a lawyer at Warner Brothers when I was there, who I had met when he was just born. Uh, and now he's, uh, I think he's in Dan Fury. He's a lawyer at Warner Brothers. We worked together a lot on different little projects if I needed some information from him. And he, oh, I'd always say, or he'd say, Dad says to say hello, and, and I say, well, give him my best, you know. So we had, I had a very good rapport with Sid. He's a great guy. You edited The Hitcher, and it was Robert Harmon's first feature movie, and what are the pros and cons of working with the first-time director? This is what happened on that movie. Uh, this is the, o- the only movie I ever cut in complete continuity, right from scene one right to the end. Uh, the, scene, the movie had already been shot. And he had an editor on it. So I'll leave that was nameless because I asked the guy to stay. And they called me and said to me, "We would love you to do this movie." And I met Bob Harmon, and I said, "Great!" So I because they didn't think they had enough coverage and all this stuff. So I started with scene one and I did it. I went all the way through to the end, and I ran it for the. I think Ed Feldman was the producer, and. They they were so pleased, and because we really all the only thing we had to reshoot, or the only shot I asked for was a slow, super slow motion shot of the match that he lights when he blows up the gas station near the middle of the movie, and it was a super super slow motion shot. And other than that, we didn't we didn't shoot anything else. And Bob Harmon, again, became a really good friend because the movie turned out great. I told Bob his problem was he was a cameraman, and a cameraman turning director, and his, all he was really looking for was shots. You're not, he, wasn't, he wasn't concentrating a lot on the performance, and, and we had to really scour that film because he shot enough. But we had to really scour it for performance. There's a lot of people who tried to copy some of the way he did his long shots and all that, which made the movie really a, a pretty good movie. It's such an unusual thriller. Did he ever, it's almost like looking at a nightmare. Was that what he was going for? Or did... I have no idea because we never even talked. We just met. I said, I read it and I'll let you see it when I finish. I had no idea what he was going for. I do know he had a, how he got his, uh, I got the, job to be able to direct. He did a little short, I think in his college or whatever film school he was at. And he had this philosophy, I remember. It's really true. It's like if you're pushing a man's face or or you're going to hit something, and you're pushing it down towards a, a hot plate or a grill or you're going to do something, you get it to the point where the audience is going to look away because you're just waiting for you to, to hit the thing and you don't see it. You don't you, but he used to, if you look at the Hitcher closely, there's really only one place I think there was any blood in it, and that's uh, when the police officers were killed, and, they, and they're going to look at it, and the dog was next to the guy, like, licking his wound or something. But we really have no blood in that movie at all. We, it's all, we have that, and we have that finger, but other than that, you don't see any real blood in the movie. 
just all suspense. Danny DeVito called me to have an interview with him, and I, and I couldn't do the movie Throw Mama from the Train Cat. I was, gonna, I was busy, but he said to me, I'd love to meet you, and I did. I went and met him. He said, I wanted to see if you were as deranged as that movie. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm glad you know that I am not. It, just, it was just a movie, you know. But uh, everything was kind of like like when the girl gets between the two trucks and all that. Uh, you don't you just see inserts and things, but you never see what actually happened. It's all off scene, and everybody visualizes what they want to see because they probably closed their eyes or something. You also edited a 3D movie and Amityville 3D, and how does oh, yeah. working on the 3D process or 3D movie affect the editing process? That was a nightmare. Because you, you are, uh, the, it was filmed then. So there's two eyes. You know, there's two spockets were one lie and two spockets was the other eye. See, when I would look at dailies, we'd have to look at them with glasses on. And then when I go to cut, I would tell them, like, well, I only can use one eye. And they would tape off the moviola so that I would only be able to see one eye at a time. So I can remember telling the boys, hey, I know we have this shot. After a couple times, one of my assistants said, Frank, you, why don't you look at the other eye, and then maybe that's where it was, and that's what would happen. It would be a part of the other, it would be on the other two sprockets. It was, it was not an easy process. I wanted to ask about the ending of RoboCop, and it, because they were talking, Paul Verhoeven and John Davidson, the screenwriter, were talking, and it, the final scene is the old man says, nice shooting, son, what's your name? And RoboCop says, Murphy. On the audio right. commentary, they said the movie was supposed to continue. But what made you decide to end the movie on that line, uh, Murphy? Oh, it seemed like it was, it, was, uh, it was a perfect out. You know, there's, when you look at a, like when I look at a movie, I look at movies now at home and, and, and give notes to the producer and director of, you know, ins and usually it's ins and outs of scenes that, that they don't get. And that was a, for us, and that was the way it was written. It was, uh, it was written that way. That's a perfect out, you know, that was, that was, the, I don't think the script went any farther, to be honest with you, at least the one I read. Also, there was an interesting commentary about, in Total Recall, the character Quato being shot in the head, and Paul Verhoeven yeah. wanted to keep it out, but you told him, no, it needed to be stay in, and then years later, you saw it on television and told the director he was right. It should be cut. Why was the change of heart? No, no, that was, that's, the wrong, that's, the wrong, that's the wrong scene. Quato scene, was that wasn't it at all. There was a scene... And I can't remember exactly which one it was. And I ended it on a close-up of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Paul said to me, Frank, I think we have to end it before you go to Arnold. And I, I came, Arnold was laying on the floor. I can't remember which scene it was. And it might have been in that area. But then Paul said, well, okay, whatever you, you know, I'll, I'll go with you. And so I, then I did see it, and it was Ralph Winters, who was still alive then, who said to me, and I had told him the story. He said, I think, you know what, you should call the director and tell him he was right. It'll make it'll strengthen your relationship, I, which was uh, already did. And I did. I called Paul, and I said, Paul, I made a mistake. 
You were right. The scene was over the, the cut before. You edited the movie Roadhouse, and this movie has gone on to a major cult following on cable Yeah, television. I know. Now there's talk of a remake. Yes, um, there any, is. Any thoughts or memories you could share of that movie? Oh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that movie was, when I saw it, I was, we were going to make, I was under hold, a contract hold with Warner Brothers, and Joel Silver was going was the producer, and they were shoot, doing uh, Roadhouse, and I was free, but I, was, I, I wasn't working because I, was, I worked when I was getting paid. So Joel Silver called me and says, you've got to come in and help me with this film. And I said, no, I, I really don't want to be a part of it. And he says, I said, how long is it? He says, it's three hours and 25 minutes long. I said, oh, my God. So I, went, I did go in and help him, and I did do cut the movie, but we actually... We, it was such a. We had to decide to take a character out of the movie, and the we had to pull took a whole character, uh, a, 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 a you know a whole. The black bartender had a, a lot bigger part in the movie, but it wasn't necessary to the movie. And then we completely took it out and got our movie down to a reasonable you know length. And that that's basically just cutting the movie down. It was. It all the, the believe me, all the stuff is there, and the director is a great guy, and he understood too. You know, uh, this is the final question, and it's kind of it's long. Bear with me. You stated on Total Recall that you got Arnold Schwarzenegger to get the establishing shot of Mars put back in the movie after the producers wanted it pulled, and also on Midway you got the lead actor. Of, Charlton Heston killed because you had this great footage of an airplane crash and you wanted to use it. As a film editor, do you have a lot of pull to make suggestions and then get them filmed? Well, I think that's your job. See, that was, was so different than the way it is. That, I think that is your job. Uh, on, on Midway, uh, in, the, in the script, uh, Charlton Heston lives. Uh, it, and And so as I was putting all this footage together, before we even started shooting, Charlton Heston had, uh, you know, he had script approval. So I found this piece of film where he's coming in at near the end of the movie, and I thought it was a great, great shot. But I also thought it would be a better ending to the movie, than, you know, that this lead guy gets killed as a hero. And so I asked Walter about it. And I showed it to him. He brought Charles Nesson up to the editing room. I ran it for him on the movieola, the scene. And they agreed, and that's how that happened. What was the other question, the other one? Well, it was just, I was just using them as two examples, totally. Yeah, but what, that was, that, that's how that one happened. Yeah, totally. recall, the, you got the oh. establishing shot of Mars yes. put back in. Yes, that we were really running over on, I guess, money, uh, too much money, and I... I heard that uh, they were going to take this shot out of the establishing shot of Mars. And I said, we can't do that. And they said, they're doing it. So I actually walked down to Arnold's trailer and explained what I, why it can't be done, in my opinion. And he, he helped me uh, keep it in the movie. It was his call, not mine. That was just my suggestion. That is true.
I would like to thank Mr. Uriosti for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on Saturday, May 14, 2016 at 2 p.m. to see the Spikes Gang. The music is from Basic Instinct by Jerry Goldsmith. Thank you.